HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You are listening to the Heritage Radio Network. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information on Kane Vineyard and Winery, visit www.kane5.com. Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm happy you tuned in today. We're going to be talking about curry today. Curry is its sort of like a catch-all. It's one of the most widely used and probably misused, according to many people, terms in, uh, in the culinary world. And in fact, outside of India, the word curry is often a catch-all to describe Indian dishes or Indian food in general that Indians rarely use to describe their own cuisine. Uh, so what is curry? Well, we are going to turn to Colleen Taylor-Sen, who is a food historian and journalist specializing in the cuisine of India. She's the author of Food and Culture in India and a regular contributor to publications such as Travel and Leisure, Food Arts, Chicago Sun-Times, the Chicago Tribune, and the Globe, and a recently published uh, a book for the Reaction series called Edible, the Edible series, and those are all the global history series that many of you are familiar with, and her book is called Curry, A Global History. Colleen, welcome. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me on your show. So I've, I've posed the question, what is curry? Oh, I guess we start by, by a definition, a real definition. Well, I had a lot of uh, trouble I, when I started doing this book because it is, as you said, it is such a catch-all. And um, I finally came up with kind of three definitions. Um, it's a meat, vegetable, or fish stew flavored with Indian spices. And I, I later added Indian to, to, you know, separate it from Mexican dishes, which also look like curries but have different spicing. Um, it's a term used for pretty much any Indian dish with a gravy. And this is something that... It, as you said, Indians rarely used it, but I've found now that it's, Indians are increasingly using the word.
word curry. I think simply because it's a short form and people um, everywhere know what it means. And but it has to be a dish with a gravy. It can't be like a kebab or a dry dish that 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 doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I, I define in my book. I use it to include any dish made with with curry powder. Interesting. Now, so this, so really, curry, and in the etymology of the word curry, I'm there. Sometimes there are references made to kari, k a r i, um, and then some people think, oh well, it's the curry leaf or the French word uh, queer to cook, because in the 14th century in England, we we find it used in um, like form of curry. But really, the curry that we that we use today has no relation to any of these. Well, it seems there is a lot of discussion about this, and it seems that uh, it's probably related to a, a Tamil word, uh, kari, which mean, meant kind of um, a, a thin gravy poured over the rice, uh, poured over rice. Uh-huh. And for some reason, the British picked up on this word, and, and gradually it came to, to apply to any, pretty much any Indian dish with a gravy. So what we, uh, and, and what we know of the curry leaf, that where does that fall in the in the whole? Well, that's a good question definition. because um, the curry leaf. Um, some curry to, to look at what curry powder is. Um, curry powder. I, I kind of did a, a study of analysis of curry powders, and all curry powders, no matter where they're made or where they're from, have turmeric in them. And most of them have things like coriander seed, cumin seed, mustard seed, fenugreek, black pepper, etc. Mm-hmm. And as some of them have curry leaves. Now, curry leaves are a leaf that virtually grows wild in India. I mean, you can find it on the streets. And um, they use it in South Indian cuisine. And I'm sure your listeners who go to South Indian restaurants will be very familiar with this. And um, so some curry powders, especially those called Madras curry powders, will have ground up curry leaves in them. But this is really only a minority. Um, A curry powder need not necessarily have curry leaves. Interesting. So it really is a a mixture of many different spices. And of course, there there are references to these types of, of spice mixes back into ancient history. Um, but when did we come to know them as curry and how? That's, well, I think, I think the very first commercial curry powder was 1739, and um, it was produced in Britain. And this is when, um, you know, the, the British who had served in India, the early people, um, came back to India, and, they, and they, they made their piles. Some of them were called the nabobs. They were very, very rich, and uh, they wanted to have the same food that they had back in India, except that, um, you know, it was hard to find the spices. So some enterprising company got the idea of making commercial pu- curry powder, Powder. And um, and they start and one one thing that's interesting is they one of the things they really touted about these curry powders were their health benefits and how they really uh, improved your health and had all and and now we're finding today that this is in fact true that the ingredients in curry powders especially turmeric turmeric have right. many yeah. many uh, health benefits to us yeah turmeric has has definitely been touted as a as as a health tonic, <laughs> if, if you will, and mixed. Uh, but it's interesting because there is um, a discussion about, the, you know, the, and I think you mentioned in your book as well, the, the Indian-Asian diaspora um, really being um, the reason for so much of the widespread use of curries or sauced meats with spice blends. Was it so much that, or was it the British invasion, <laughs> the British Empire, well, the East Indian... 
trading yeah. company. It's actually both. It's actually both. I think in England, I mean, England really, curry is virtually the national dish there. I mean, just as in the U.S., if we're going to do takeout, we do Thai or Chinese, or here in Chicago, we do a lot of Mexican, um, or, you know, if you want to go out for a quick meal. In Britain, really, the default meal now is curry. Hmm. Um, you, it's just sold everywhere. It's sold in pubs. It's sold in supermarkets. And I think that's a combination of things. I think it's, you know, Brit, the Brits have historic ties to, to Indian food has never really caught on in the U.S. the way it has elsewhere. And I think there's many reasons for this, but I think, you know, the British have historic ties for, for India. It's very much a part of the national psyche when they were an empire, and India was the, the jewel in their crown. And then you had, of course, after Indian independence and in the 50s and 60s, you had a great wave of immigration from the subcontinent to England who opened restaurants. And, you know, restaurants are an, uh, an easy way for a new immigrant to uh, to get established. So um, I think that's one reason, that's why one reason, many reasons why it's so popular in the UK. Yeah, it's, well, it's interesting because the, um, I mean, the British obviously formed the East India Trading Company, you know, and in India. And, um, but wasn't that more for the black pepper trade? Yes, it was. Actually, that was the first great multinational corporation. That's what I like to call it. It had branches all over the world. And, uh, I mean, in the U.S., don't forget, the people who shipped the tea to Boston Harbor, that was the East India Company. Oh, that's right. And, um, you know, they had, they had uh, outposts in Malaysia and um, th- throughout, the, throughout the world. And it did indeed start with the pepper trade, except that the pepper trade really goes back to, um, to classical times. India was a great exporter of pepper to the Roman Empire, and, and one reason for its collapse is supposed to be the great out, outpouring of gold that went to India for, for spices. And um, so this has been something that's gone on for, for thousands of years. Well, because so many people think, um, you know, they, they shy away, people who aren't uh, comfortable with spicy foods shy away from curries, thinking they're all going to be spicy. But there you know, years way back when, when these sauces first were developed, there were no chili peppers because that was a new world food. So it, it, they're not all spicy mixtures. They're just, I mean, they have spices in them, but not piquant. They're not, they're not hot necessarily. Right. And it's interesting that, you know, we think of Indian food as inseparable from, from chili pepper, but as you said, it, it was really part of what's called the Colombian Exchange, and they weren't introduced really till probably the, uh, sometime in the 17th century. But they did replace something that not only black pepper, but there's something called long pepper um, mm-hmm. that was used in India. It's kind of a you can get it sometimes, and it, it's really an Ayurvedic thing. But I, I, it's a it's like kind of a little bit like Sichuan pepper, and that was really what chilies um, replaced to a large degree was this long pepper mm-hmm. that had been used in Indian cuisine. And it, that has a that has a very nice. A more subtle flavor, but a nice flavor. You can find it in a lot of Malaysian cooking, but you and also spice. You can find it in specialty spice stores still. Oh, okay. Here, here in America, that you know, Calusians here in New York. I know I can. Oh, okay. I can always find it. But uh, yeah, that's right. That that's a wonderful. That's that's a wonderful uh, flavor, and that the chili and the chili peppers replaced it. Unfortunately, but fortunately <laughs> for some, right? Um, so that so the really the um, the trade the, the spice trade had a lot to do with popularizing this this curry as we know it, right? Um, talk well. What about so that's the UK and the Dutch, and uh, I mean the Dutch did a lot to to uh, bring about the popularity of this too, right? 
Well, yeah. I mean, people don't know much about the Dutch Empire, but it was the second really great empire uh, that, and, and they controlled so much. I mean, they 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 were in Ceylon for Sri Lanka for quite a while, and in Indonesia, and um, then there was there was a whole, uh, you know. And you find it today in the Netherlands. I mean, the Netherlands, uh, traditional Dutch food is pretty bland. But um, after Indonesia got its independence in, I think, the late 40s, when, when that was, a lot, of, uh, a lot of Indonesians and a lot of Dutch people who had served there came back to, to Holland. And now you find everywhere in, in the Netherlands, you find, um, like, vending machines that serve all kinds of uh, kind of Indian, Indonesian, Dutch uh, specialties. You have a lot of these little, they're called, I think, tokos that are little shops that sell um, Indonesian Dutch food. You have people from the Indonesian colonies like Suriname that came back to the Netherlands. So you really have, um, it, it's really done a lot to enliven um, the cuisine, not just the, not just of the Netherlands, but Germany too. Now, that's a very interesting anomaly among curries because one of the most popular foods in, in Germany is this curry. Yes, tell us a story uh, about that one. I heard, I heard a bit about that. (laughs) Tell us the background. Well, it was from you, from you in your book. Oh, okay. So tell me, let's tell our listeners. Well, it's basically it's um, it's a sausage, and they grill it, and then they serve it with kind of um, uh, with with sometimes with with peppers and onions, and they serve it with this um, with this sauce, this tomato sauce, and then curry powder on top, and. Where it came from, I, in fact, I didn't put this in my book because I didn't know it at the time, but I think it probably arose um, during World War, at the end of World War II, when the, the British servicemen were there, and one of them went to, you know, to a, a restaurant and wanted curry, and of course they didn't know what it was, so they, they got some curry powder and sprinkled it on, on the sausage, and that became um, currywurst. At least that's one explanation. Um, and there's a big debate about where it originated, and there's been novels written about it, there's a movie called The Origin of currywurst, so it's it's just uh, enormously popular and one of these strange anomalies that you wouldn't expect. I think one reason for it it's it's when a, a cuisine is basically a bland cuisine, they need something to spice it up. So mm-hmm. they adopt these um, these 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 dishes. Well, and you know, um, I think most Americans cooking curry will go to the supermarket and buy a generic bottle of curry powder and mix that up with, uh, you know, with whatever liquids and and oils with the meat. But in true curry, they uh, this uh, this spice mix would be made a la minute, right? I mean, they would make it right before they'd use it. No, um, that's a, a, a it's a good question. Um, you know, my husband is Indian, and he's uh, he's a pretty good cook. He does our cooking, and um, there's there's some dishes that you would use kind of ready-made curry powder or garam masala. The British style curries, you know, kind of the basic chicken curry. Actually, they probably made better with a with a curry powder um, as opposed to mixing your spices, which would be for a more elaborate Indian dish. And the kind of and he he grew up. He remembers um, the British days in Calcutta, you know, which was the capital of British India. Mm-hmm. And um, he, the curry powder he likes is the kind you buy in, um, you buy them in Chinese and Vietnamese store. There's one Vietnamese curry powder that he says very much like the old style British British curry powder he remembers when he was a little kid. Interesting. And we, and we, and if we're making, you know, Indian food can be very labor intensive, very time consuming. Right. I mean, it's not the sort of thing that, you know, you, you whip up every day. But for quick Indian meals, we sometimes we'll just use like ready made curry powder and maybe ready made gada masala. And you know, it's not as great as the real thing, but at least you don't have to, you know, cook for hours. That's right. Well, and and funny that it's sort of become 
Indian fast food. I and mean, we here in New York, we have a shop even called Curry in a Hurry. <laughs> it's, you know, all these ready-made curries. You go in and, and like a steam table or a McDonald's, you know, you quick, all the food is already prepared and you just point to this, this and that and, and you get your curries. Um, it's great because you get a, a totally different flavor than, than the usual, as you say, boring, bland food. So it's it's kind of a nice kind of a nice thing in a way I guess right. Well, I think there's a, and I think there is a global trend towards spicier food. I mean, especially in the United States. I mean, all the it, it, it almost is like a revolution that any restaurant you go to now. I mean, they have Tabasco sauce on the table. I mean, even German restaurants they'll give it to you now. And I think you know our love of Thai food, our love of Mexican food is all part of this. So I think the we're all tending towards wanting more. Um, and the one explanation given is that as the population gets older, our taste buds are, you know, not as um, sensitive as they used to be. So <laughs> aging palates demand more spices. They need to be <laughs> awakened a little more. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, well, you know, you mentioned our love of Thai food. Interesting, because, because we find a lot of Thai curries. Thai f- curries are found in so many different cultural cuisines. The Chinese, the Thai, the Malaysian. One that surprised me was Japanese. Oh, Japanese curry is another of these anomalies. Um, I, I, I really wrote a lot about it in the book because it's so intriguing. It actually was brought by the British. Uh, the British had a, um, a settlement, I think, in I think it was Yokohama, and and and, and um, at this time, the Japan and the, after the Meiji Restoration, the emperor was trying to get people to, especially the army, to eat more meat um, because you know to build up their strength. And one for some reason, one way they thought of doing this was to use and especially beef because the Japanese component meant that people were very reluctant to eat beef. And um, for some reason, curry just, one way of eating this meat was to, was to with curry. And um, they, they, they started, you know, stews, and then a company called, um, oh my goodness, I've forgotten the name. I think um, it's the main Japanese purveyor of these ready-made curries now. Um, it's not C&B, but it's like C&B from Cross and Blackwell's, mm-hmm. and they started, and, and now it's probably the number one comfort food in Japan, and it's something that mothers make for home, school kids have at lunch. It's not something you'd serve guests, but it's just become a very, um, in, in, and they have curry shops, too, in, in, in Japanese cities, and they're different from the Indian restaurants that serve regular Indian food, but it's just become enormously popular, and there's a, a cartoon um, with curry in it. There's a Japanese wrestler called Curry Man, and he has, <laughs> he has, he has moves like the, um, the spice rack, and uh, it's just a it's very interesting cultural phenomenon. Well, there's, you, there's reference um, in the book to a Caribbean curry dish called Kari, kari Rezu. Is that something? Uh, that's Japanese, yeah. Kari oh, raisu. Kari yeah. raisu is Jap. Oh, I see. It's not yeah. Caribbean, but Caribbean, yeah. but the Caribbean has its own curries as well, right? Oh, yeah, Trinidad. I mean, 40% of the population of Trinidad is, is from India originally. When slavery was abolished in the British Empire, um, they started bringing in indentured laborers who could go and work for five years, and then they would, you know, could go back or get land, and most of them stayed. So um, Trinidadian food especially is wonderful, and I think in New York you're very fortunate because you have, uh, you, well, also Jamaican food. I mean, Jamaican has a lot of um, interesting like goat curry and right. and roti and things right. and I you have a wonderful thriving uh, Caribbean food culture in New York City. Yeah, interesting. And, and I I was actually um, I'm quite familiar with Malaysian food, but I was it was interesting to me to that rendang is considered a curry. Well, because it's a gravy, a sauce dish on a meat, right? 
Yeah, so I kind of included the set. Yeah, that was just my definition. And it had kind of Indian, Indonesian-style spices. That was kind of the other component that, mm-hmm. that I used. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's probably the most international or internationally recognized food of our dish, not food, but preparation of a dish, even though each one varies so dramatically. Uh, what I, uh, you know, I, I wondered, what do you think is the greatest myth about curry and what curry is? Um, hmm. I mean, that, that it's Indian? Because I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not, it is Indian in, in terms of origin, but now it's taken on so many forms. Yeah, um, I don't know if there's any single myth about uh, about curry as such. I think that um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Indian food. One is that, as you mentioned, that Indian food is always hot. It really it really varies a great deal. I mean, mm. I know in my husband's family the food is is really bland, <laughs> and it's it's not for me. I mean, my for my sake, it's just the way they eat it. And other mm. families, so that varies a lot. Um, well, I would like to hear more about the uh, about the Indian food in particular. We're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, let's explore more about about that Indian food um, explanation. Great. Okay. That was some good Bollywood music to get us in the mood for some Indian food. We're talking with Colleen Taylor-Sen, um, who has just recently published a book called Curry, A Global History. In fact, Colleen, uh, you're going to be in the New York area. For our New York listeners, Colleen's going to be in New York City on January 31st, uh, the first speaker in a nice little series called uh, Edible Conversations. And you can find out about this uh, on the web at, uh, well, you can probably search Edible Conversations, and you'll come up with the link to the um, to the ticket site. And that's January 31st at the Roger Smith Hotel. I look forward to seeing you and meeting you then. But in the meantime, I'm enjoying talking to Colleen on the phone. Um, and we were just about to, um, to describe some of the misconceptions about Indian food, Colleen. Yes. Well, one of them, as I mentioned, is that uh, Indian food is hot. Um, another is that people, I just wrote a little book really for fun um, called Pakoras Paneer Papadums, A Guide to Indian Restaurant Menus, uh, that's available on Amazon.com. Oh, and that's going to be really popular. People are really going to want that, I'm sure, because, you well, know, that menu, menu sorting out the menus in, in uh, Indian restaurants can sometimes be a bit daunting. Well, I think, yeah, what, what stimulated me to write this was a, a restaurant uh, owner uh, who's a friend of mine, and he complained that all people who go to, most of the people, I shouldn't say all, but 90% of the people who go to his restaurants, and this includes Indians too, order four dishes, and the four dishes are tandoori chicken, <laughs> butter chicken, samosas, 
and sag paneer, which is spinach and cheese. And, and it's absolutely true since he said that. I look at restaurants when I go, and, and I, people are very limited in their choices. And there's so many other, um, you know, other, other interesting dishes that they can, they can order. Often I think the restaurant owners aren't too helpful either, or the waiters. They don't want to, uh, you know, push, push dishes on people. But um, people maybe should try and branch out a little bit and, and order something other than those four dishes. Well, in chicken, well, my husband always orders chicken tikka masala. Would this would that would this be considered a curry dish, basically? Well, yeah, chicken tikka masala is is I think it's pretty much the same as butter chicken. I haven't quite been able to figure out exactly the difference, but actually, it, the way that dish arose, um, tandoori chicken itself is a very recent thing. People think it's this ancient Indian dish, but actually, um, it was invented around in the late 1940s by by a, a famous restaurant owner named um, Kundanlal Gujral, who actually I had a chance to interview before he died. That was about 30 years ago, and um, he came from after partition when India, the subcontinent was divided between India and Pakistan, he came from um, North Pakistan near Afghanistan, and he, he they had they used did a lot of cooking in these tandoors, these clay ovens there, and he um, set up a little roadside stall and he he developed his own marinade for chicken and roasted it, and for various reasons it became very important. Then he found he eventually opened a restaurant called Moti Mahal, and now it's it's part of a chain. So he actually created. This, this dish. And the story is that he, when he had leftover tandoori chicken, he didn't, as a way of using it, he put it in this um, buttery, creamy, this tomato buttery, creamy sauce, and he sold it as, um, as buttered chicken or chicken tikka masala, as it be- later became. So this was <laughs> kind of another invention. And, and well, it was very successful served, because it's, it's a very popular it is, dish. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Right. And it's always served with naan, which are these wonderful uh, breads that are roasted in the tandoor. Mm, yes. So what um, I was trying to describe to somebody the different styles of Indian restaurants, from my knowledge, which is, is very slim, um, and the different regions of India. Unfortunately, we don't get a lot of regional Indian restaurants in the U.S., no, you have a lot more in New York than, than elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was reading my book, I, I went to you know that menu.com, and I was looking at um, uh, this amazing wealth of information. And, and in, in New York City, you, have, you do have some go-in restaurants. You, you do have several, you know, quite a few, I think, regional restaurants in some of the Indian shopping areas. But it, that's absolutely true. And, and what's funny is you never had them in India either. And we just came back from a trip to Delhi where I hadn't been for five years, and I was abs- absolutely flat. Flabbergasted at at the growth of the Indian restaurant community in 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 Delhi. I mean, you have a couple. Of, my husband's Bengali, and Bengali food is wonderful. And despite the fact that so many restaurants are owned and staffed by Bangladeshis, they never serve Bengali food. Well, now um, in Delhi, you have these wet restaurants serving these wonderful Bengali dishes, and um, you have other regional things. So even in India, you you really couldn't sample these things either. Well, and how, I mean, how you say that um, the differences between the bland and the, and the very um, pungent and spicy, which, which regions represent which types of foods? Oh, I don't think you can really um, generalize about it. I mean, South Indian food, well, Madras curry, if you see that on a restaurant menu, it usually means it's a pretty hot curry. It has like chilies in it. 
I think traditionally South Indian food is known to be hotter, and some Pakistani food can be extremely hot. Mm. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, a meat-based, and there's not really that much distinction between Pakistani and North Indian food. I mean, this is kind of a, um, a, a, a an artificial creation, but, but um, generally that's South Indian and can, can be quite, can be pretty hot, mm-hmm. but not always. Right. Right, and of course, then there's a um, a huge vegetarian population, and and I I see more and more vegetarian Indian vegetarian restaurants popping up, which is nice. Yeah, and in New York, you have you have uh, Indian kosher restaurants too. Huh. <laughs> they're they're vegetarian restaurants, and you know they're they're kind of I guess certified by a rabbi, and that's an interesting thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just and that that, that just goes to show how the how the cultures are all. Um, it, the world has become a small place, and and yes. cultures are are embracing other uh, foods and dishes into into their usual cuisine. Um, so, but all of these different, would you say? I mean, I don't know. Would are do all the different various Indian restaurants or or Bengali or Pakistani restaurants include a curry or a form of curry? Yes, they do. I mean, any any dish with a gravy, you could call a curry. Um, I've noticed that the word is is appearing more on restaurant menus too, uh, Indian restaurant menus. Because, um, as I said, in the old days, people never used it, but now it's, Indians will use it. And you go to a menu, and you go to a restaurant, and you'll say, "Well, what's this dish?" And the waiter will say, "Well, it's a curry." And by that, you kind of have a general idea that this is a wet dish as opposed to a you know a dry dish as opposed to a kebab. So I think the word is becoming really in more and more widespread use today. Mm-hmm. Now. T- t- if you could, for me, describe a couple of different dishes, um, because you just mentioned wet as opposed to dry, and of course, something that is just comes from the tandoor oven, which you say is more recent, that of course is a dry dish, is a dry baked meat or or bread. Um, but what would what would another example of a dish be that is, um, as you mentioned, a dry dish? A dry dish. Well, dry dishes are kebabs, and uh, there are many, many kinds of kebabs. I mean, dozens, maybe even hundreds. Um, the most common is sikh kebab, and sikh kebab is just, um, well, it has different meanings. And, uh, this is kind of, sikh, you know, kebab is another dish, book you could, another thing you could do a book you on. You could talk really about different universe. cultures with kebabs. Right? Oh, my goodness, yeah, it's a universal dish, really. I mean, right. it's everywhere from the Balkans to China. They even have kebabs in China, um, you know, in the Muslim areas. Um, but um, sikh kebab is kind of a long, like, ground meat put on a skewer, um, kind of sausage-shaped, and that's and then another very nice kebab is a shami kebab, and shami kebab is, is ground meat mixed with um, chickpeas, ground chickpeas and spices, and then it's, it's made into patties, and it looks like a hamburger, um, and it, it's slightly sautéed, and those are delicious. They're very hard to make. Um, that's one of my favorite kebabs, is the mm. shami kebab. Hmm, interesting. I'm, I'm actually taking notes, so the next time I go to a restaurant, I'll make sure to order some of these. <laughs> because um, that's, I, and I look forward to reading your, your little handbook on, on uh, deciphering the menu and how to order, because that, I think, is going to be extremely helpful to me and to a lot of other people. Uh, Thank you. Outside of, you know, going outside the, the curry realm. Not that we don't want to eat curry, because curry is absolutely wonderful. In fact, you see, you relegated an entire book to it. Well, the f- research for this book must have been fun as well. I mean, a bit daunting, but to fun. <laughs> oh, it was. And, and fortunately, I'd been to a lot of the places I wrote about. So, um, it, But it, it was really just, it was so interesting to me just to, um, you know, to find out how, 
how widespread the whole, especially the Indian diaspora. I mean, I, I had no idea. It, really, every continent had had people who came in the 19th century, even South America in Guyana, you know, Southeast Asia, Africa in South Africa. You have a lot of um, Indian Indian food in South Africa. Yes, you now a, you, a, a, you spoke about an interesting dish in South Africa, that there are curry dishes very popular there. Talk about that. Oh, it was bunny chow, and bunny, bunny chow, chow. Um, is—it's is, basically a loaf of Western-style bread that's hollowed out, and you put curry into it. And the way this came was during apartheid. There were a lot of Indian restaurants, especially in in Durban, and um, of course the black population weren't allowed to enter. So the Indian. Um, Restaurant owners got the idea of pouring the curry into a, a, a loaf of bread and then passing it, like going to the back of the restaurant and selling it that way. You're making it portable, right? They could just, yes, it was portable, oh. right? Oh, interesting. In South Africa, I mean, who would have, you know, who would have thought? That's, but that is, that tr- is true, as you say. That really um, is quite remarkable that the Indians have found themselves in every every culture. It seems, and Absolutely. Uh, and of course. Culinary, from a culinary point of view, we welcome it because I think the food is very interesting. And just the introduction of the different spices that we might never have, have delved into is, um, is remarkable in itself. And, and I, I look forward to hearing more about it and to meeting you when you're in New York City on January 31st. Again, um, Colleen will be at the Edible Conversations series and she'll be presenting on January 31st at the Roger Smith Hotel. And I'm so happy that you were able to join me on the radio today because there's so much more to learn about curry. And um, I think this will be a very informative book for people who want to know more. It's called Curry, A Global History. And Colleen Taylor-Sen is the author. Colleen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It was very interesting to talk to you. Good. This is Linda Palaccio, and you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'd like to thank my executive producer, Jack Inslee. And please join us again next week for another date on A Taste of the Past.